This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 65. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 65 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Audio Technica, Universal Audio and Focal Monitors. Welcome back to another show. Today we have on a little bit different guest than we normally do. We are not having a recording engineer on. <gasps> Shock. I know. You know, I decided that I wanted to get a different perspective on what we do and just hear from another voice within the music industry. So I have on solo artist Brad Brooks who is an old friend of mine that I've known since 1990. Brad has a lot of experience and uh, has been in and out of studios over the years. So he came over to the house and we sat down for a chat and, you know, we just discussed his experiences, which we're going to talk about and talk about, you know, uh, the artist's perspective, just because I think sometimes we get stuck in not a rut, but we kind of get into our own feedback uh, cycle where we just listen to ourselves and talk about gear and talk about us. Whereas really, I mean, if it weren't for those of us who record music, if it weren't for the musicians, then, you know, what else would we be doing? I don't know. So, well, we'd be doing other forms of audio, of course. So that's it. Brad Brooks coming up. So, of course, I can't get through the show without mentioning uh, the loss of George Martin this past week, uh, 90 years old, lived a long life. Man, what an impact this man had on music. Amazing. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not telling you all anything you don't already know. And if you're too young to know who George Martin is, we're not talking about George Martin, creator of Game of Thrones. We are talking about George Martin, also known as the Fifth Beatle, producer extraordinaire. Yeah, really um, uh, just an introspective week, um, loss of George Martin. And on a personal note, I, uh, a good friend of mine, childhood friend of mine, his wife uh, died of a, uh, a brain um, aneurysm at uh, age 52. And uh, that, and George Martin, and also, you know, I didn't know the man, but... Um, Nicholas Harris, founder of uh, Cattle and Bread Effects, died at 37, you know? And I'm not trying to bring you down, but I do want to just remind us all that life is short. So don't sweat the small shit at all. Move on, do what you need to do, live your life, enjoy it. Enjoy recording, enjoy music, enjoy uh, the world that we all run in. And uh, don't be petty and as our... Dear friend Andrew Sheps likes to say, don't be a dick, you know? There's just not any time for that shit. So that's my advice for today um, on that. So rest in peace, all of those who uh, have passed this past week. And uh, yeah, on a more um, technical note and a more uplifting note, we have been, as you know, if you've been listening and following along, we have uh, been talking to James Lindenschmidt from Real Traps. And James has been consulting with me about improving the uh, acoustics of my own room, which I am very much uh, interested in doing. And so uh, if you haven't uh, picked up on it, uh, go follow parts one and two of our conversation. Uh, part one took place in uh, episode 63 and part two took place in episode 64. We are not going to have our part three today because uh, the products, uh, the real traps products that we discussed last episode are, uh, on their way from Connecticut up here to Northern California or across the country to Northern California, I should say. So it's going to be a few days, probably, uh, to I'm recording this on a Friday. So, uh, I assume that, uh, by the time you hear this, it's, it'll be Monday and, uh, maybe within a couple of days of that, we'll, we'll see the, uh, products delivered, which, uh, then I'll have to incorporate, take some new measurements and then we'll have another call with James to kind of check in and uh, make any tweaks that we need to do. So uh, it's an interesting conversation. If you are interested in finding out more about um, the process of consulting with James and the Real Traps folks and improving your own listening situation, 
And uh, yeah, I encourage you to check that out. So that's it. Let's get to it with Brad Brooks on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So we're here at my house and I'm here with my friend Brad Brooks, who I've known for, known you for a long time. I was trying to explain to my wife, I was like, yeah, I've known Brad since... 1990. And I started to to throw the fingers down and counting. And yeah, anyways, I've known you for a long time. So I wanted to bring you in because of your perspective from the artist's point of view, which we rarely hear about because I think that recording engineers kind of, we get into like a, a circle of ourselves, I guess. And we mainly concentrate on ourselves. So what I want to talk about and just, you know, kind of random conversation about your experiences and your expectations and your thoughts and maybe your suggestions for other recording engineers, older ones, as well as up and coming ones about what they should be thinking about with regards to artists and how to best interact, encourage, uh, or, you know, know, know how to speak up, when to speak up, et cetera. So tell the people that we're going are going to be listening like a little bit about your backstory yeah how, how you got to the bay area how, and what has led up to this my story really starts in tucson in tucson arizona which is where i started playing music probably in like the mid 80s totally just grew up in the in the scene of um i was around with hal gelb and uh, giant sand when they started and yeah. There was a guy named Reiner that we all looked up to. The Sidewinders was another band. But I just kind of grew up in that original music scene, which has turned into like desert noir, desert rock, I guess you would say. I was in a band uh, called Pollo Elastico that did pretty well out there in the late 80s. And um, we toured around a lot and had some things happening. And um, as most bands happen after a while, it didn't didn't quite work out the way we wanted, but... Um, we're still Gee, really, yeah, what, yeah. What a surprise! Uh, we're still super close friends, though, and I consider them some of my closest brothers. And we uh, still kind of get together in Tucson. My musical soul really kind of grew up in Tucson and still is in there. And and I've talked to some other friends. My friend uh, Eddie Spaghetti is in the Super Suckers. Same thing. Like, there's we kind of grew up rebelling against that sort of country thing that was going on then but it just seeped in and it's just part of the dna of like our musical fabric so as we've gotten older it's come out mm-hmm. um and, and our different versions of what we consider country but um country has always been and sort of like a punk rock version of country has always been part of tucson i think and then it's sort of branched out into more um almost like eno morricone mm-hmm. um soundscape version of that but anyway so I, I i grew up in that and um but i moved to san francisco in 1990 um i really followed my daughter my oldest daughter was uh gonna be out here and she was in tucson at the time and and my wife had split up and so that she was going to be in the uh, northern california so that's really what brought me out here although i'd had toured out here with boy elastico and and had a, um some friends in order to come out here and and the music scene, especially in 1990, was really, really fertile in San Francisco. There was so much going on, and there was, was so much uh, diversity and and support. There was just it was a lot of weird shit going on musically. There was it was wide open, like, and that was really cool. That's so missing now. It was interesting because you had on one hand you had like Primus, but then you had like Counting Crows and Sister Double Happiness. Do you remember the band The Deli Creeps? Of course, of oh. course. Yeah, that and was Jackson uh, Saints. And, yeah, yeah. Of course. And, and and you say Jackson Saints, that's where I sort of, you know, Eric Mead is a guy who really introduced me to everybody I ever met in San Francisco. And uh when I was in the band Wrecking Ball, which is where I think when I met you. Yep. And um so Eric really just if he liked your band like he told everybody about it, which was very cool and and I it's funny I just ran into him a couple of weeks ago and you know, he still goes out to see great rock and roll when it's out there, you know? Yeah. So I, I was able to jump into that scene you're talking about with like sister double happiness and Jackson saints and, and Poyo Elastico had played with Primus. So I knew those guys a little bit. I knew psycho Funkopus. I knew those guys pretty well and, um, ended up finding a place, uh, on Moss street and across the street turned out to be, uh, rehearsal studios 
there was a school that my daughter ended up going to. So it was really, um, for me, a, a case of this was where I was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, for how for how random it put me in that spot. I've always been a singer, and at the time didn't play an instrument. Always just wrote lyrics for um, for music for different you know band for band people's music, and that's really kind of how I started. Was in Wrecking Ball for a couple of years, and the same thing. We had a lot of stuff happening, and then just kind of fell apart and started another band called Dolorosa with Roger Rocha, who was in Four Non Blondes, and um, and who I'd met through Linda Perry. Actually, I knew Linda and still know Linda. Um, and there was, of course, as we've discussed, you know, the very short period of time where you and the two of us and Eric, Eric Mead, actually, yeah, I act- we rehearsed for uh, once or twice, I think, and. Uh, that didn't quite work out, but that was kind of in passing. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's really how you and I, because I was always a Sexton's fan, and and had seen you play with him a little bit, and but also, yeah, there was a time where you and I and Eric Mead were going to try and be in a band together, and yeah, for some reason it didn't work out. But I, I remember, always I loved your drumming, and and I remember seeing you uh, with Wrecking Ball at the Kennel Club, I think it was, and just being like, wow, that guy can sing. <laughs> Uh, so thank you. we had the mutual admiration society going on there after Dolorosa with Roger from Four Non Blondes. What, what happened after that? Yeah. So at that point that was like, um, God, 96, 97. So another case of going at it really hard. We, we actually made a record with, um, Michael Rosen. that was came has never seen the light of day, but Michael's been on the show. Yeah. I love Michael. Loved working with him. Uh, Linda Perry financed a record for us. We made it with Michael and things were looking pretty good. But Linda's manager at the time, we couldn't quite work out a deal on it. I think I think we felt it was too much and was one of those things where, you know, we probably should have just bit the bullet in order to have it come out, but but we didn't. And she stood fast on her ground and thing never has still has never come out, which would be nice if it did. Wow. And I know that she would probably be fine with it now because um we've we've talked about it, you know. But uh yeah, Michael Rosen made this record with us, so it's Probably the last rock record, you know, maybe for San Francisco for a while. It was, it was, it was, this was like 96, 97. So, so there wasn't, you know, rock was kind of like phasing itself out, but we were, we were, we were pretty heavy for what we were doing. But so that was another, uh, n- another tale lear- learning experience huh. that didn't turn out well. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, I am never going to be in another band that's going to break up. So I'm going to do my own music and I'm going to learn how to play piano and play guitar and write. And I mean, I've always wrote lyrics and melodies and that, but I was going to be my own, my own thing. However long it took, you Mm -hmm. know, I was like, I'm going to record my songs and collaborate with people, but it's going to be under my name. If if I'd come up with a cool band name, I would have done it under a band name, but I just didn't come up with anything good. So I just, made it brad brooks which for strangely enough for me it took me a long time to get to that point like okay this is i'm just it pretty much is my name so mm-hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna put stuff out under that so my first record came out i recorded with the uh, davy vane and the groove room which is uh, where i basically um i think i i i've known davy over the years but i recorded with him because i knew kat katrina sardofsky who managed linda she had talked to me about Davey and I liked the stuff he'd done with Mover and he he had started doing some stuff. So I kind of went in with him and, and was basically going in with people that I admired coming in with, it was almost like a different band for each song for hmm. the most part. So I would like kind of pick and choose who I felt fit this particular song. So I started learning to, to write my own songs and, and that was sort of the start of my, my journey as a solo artist and being able to record on my own and on my own dime and and all that. So it usually takes me about three years to not only finance it, but also to, I'm, I'm not prolific as far as the amount of writing. I kind of like to take my time. Hmm. And um, yeah, my record came out in 2000. It's called Sanctified and Astroglide. I was really into um, Jellyfish and like um, uh, the Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle and, it's weird. I've always had this like orchestrated pop thing mixed with this country thing that's just always been in there. Hmm. So I've always tried to marry these things together. Sort of queen voice that I range that I can have 
mixed with the storytelling of like country music, which I love. When I say country, I mean real country, not that shit that's going on. That's <laughs> pretty much a little bad, more, a little more traditional, bad rock and roll is what I call it. But, um, but I've always had that the two sort of polar sides, and I've always tried to sort of meld them together. And I think in that first record, they're pretty far apart, you know, as far as like stylistically. I I really never thought about like what kind of a style of a song I wanted to write. I was just writing what was coming out, mm -hmm. and 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 I think generally it depends on what I write it on. More orchestrated things I do when I'm written I writing on piano because uh, I learned to play piano pretty much by ear. I didn't know how to what chords were, and I'm still not too, you know. I I know a lot more than I did, but I try to remain ignorant about some things because I want it to go where my ear is taking me and where I feel, mm -hmm. not where I'm supposed to go or where my hands are supposed to take me to. I go more for just what what I'm hearing and and where where I'm getting to. I actually rely on engineers and producers to go hey, try this or let's maybe, you know, add this onto it. The nice thing that I've been lucky about is everyone who's produced or record me has been able to, to not steer me too far from something that they feel has been the original part of my writing, which is to take something that, hey, musically that doesn't make sense, but when you sing it and play it, it makes total sense. So we're going to keep that. So hmm. I've always appreciated that sense of, what makes me unique as far as a writer goes and that people have kept that even even to this day and so. since you've started operating under brad brooks and, and and keeping it as your project that's been going on for what i mean yeah from 2000 to 2016 okay. so i put out right, three so. records and in the middle of my fourth one so and you're getting ready to put out another one here yeah i'm about halfway through um as far as like this this fourth record, I've got like six songs finished and I'm going to Tucson to go mix with Craig Schumacher, our our friend. So I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like halfway through, but I really am this is the this uh, latest record is really the first time I've written sort of I have a, an amazing live band that I've that's been playing with me for over three years. And this is the first record where I've writing with the band. Mm -hmm. Like we're getting in there together and and kind of working it out since since Dolorosa, since ninety-six. So it's like almost a twenty year gap between like going in and having ideas and and working it out with the band. In the in the past I I've recorded were um, my record before um, Harmony Passing Light was um, with uh, Todd Roper and Paul Hoagland and Shay Scott predominantly. So they weren't the live band, but it was a band of the four of us. Hmm. I'm, I'm kind of jumping around, but I'm backtracking to, to the last record before. But this, uh, this latest record is really sort of me getting back to my roots and not only from the standpoint of writing with, it, with the band, but also musically, it's going to be more like my soul record you know i'm going back to like to being the uh, soul singer which i've always had in there you know i've had this weird thing of like a mixture of like queen and todd rundgren and 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 soul music mixed with um like i said this arizona country thing that just is always you in can't there. get out of your system because you it's in there man it's weird it's like new orleans players and and horn playing horns growing up <laughs> It's like you 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 know you're you you're in school and you get a horn put in your hand. There was a guy that I got to listen to when I was a kid named Travis Edmondson, and he was a folk guy. And he actually started out in San Francisco with a folk group called Bud and Travis. My dad was a manager of this hotel in Tucson called the Ramada Inn, and Travis would play there in the early '70s, and that's when I used to see him as a kid. And he was playing like Spanish music, mariachi style music. Like his music is really amazing. If you ever get a chance, he is really the godfather of Tucson music. You know, in, that, in my in my estimation, okay. going as far back, he grew up in Nogales. He's someone you should check out, kids. Uh, Travis Edmondson, Travis Edmondson. And, and Bud and Travis. You've kind of condensed it down, and I know that there's a lot that's gone on over the, over that time period. Now let's kind of pull it back into the perspective of your experiences recording. Right. You said. Um, you know, we talked on the phone and you said that your experiences have mostly been positive. Yeah. In fact, I can't really think of anything too negative. The, it's weird. The first, when I first moved to San Francisco, Wrecking Ball 
which I thought was a pretty awesome band. And I, Mike Simple was, was a great guitar player and great writing partner. I always felt like the thing that we missed out was we never found the right person to record us. And it wasn't until I started, it's weird, I started doing sort of my own thing a little bit before Dolorosa because I was sort of forced to. The Wrecking Ball was going to record with Bart Thurber. Oh, yeah, House uh, of Faith. House of Faith. And I wish that we had because he was the one guy that a lot of us found who knew how to record a band live and make them sound fucking badass. He did it very simply but very effectively. And I ended up doing some songs with some of the guys in Motherload, uh, Dan Cady and Greg Foote. It was sort of, and it was strangely, it was sort of the start of my solo thoughts. But we recorded with Bart Thurber and they came out really well. And I was like, we finally found someone. But unfortunately, Wrecking Ball did not find that person. But when I when I moved to San Francisco, um, Timo Frost and Mike Simple came from Tucson and, and played with me. We went to this guy that I cannot even remember his fucking name. And we recorded with him because he had, somehow he had recorded the Stones early on, or uh, it was an English cat. And that was like his sort of thing. And we recorded with him and it just either... Did not sound good. We didn't sound good. <laughs> not a good experience. I can't even think of the guy's name. I just want to mention uh, Bart Thurber, who yeah. has never been on the show. Um, yeah, he's he's a guy I'd love to hear from, too. Oh, man. I, my only um, exposure to anything that he had recorded was Stone Fox. Right. He they they had this song called Donkey and Butterfly, and just yeah. the, the performance and the sound of what he got just really grabbed a hold of me. I was like, wow, who well, is this and that's guy? exactly, that's how we found him too, the same way through Stone Fox, through Janice and them. They had recorded with Bart and we heard it too. And we were like, let's, and I booked a wrecking ball session for us to go in there. But unfortunately the band broke up before we got a chance to go in there. Another kind of Bay Area recording engineer that really caught my attention before I really knew I was going to be into the world of recording. This is when I was just playing the role of drummer was um carl durfler who had yeah, recorded yeah. um all the billy nair stuff yeah the billy nair show of course carl went on to you know like do some tom, tom wade stuff and dave and, matthews yeah and, you know he he and i've i've worked with him when i had my studio in san francisco he is incredible he's like a jedi master in the world of recording he is one of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah, I never got to work with him, but um friend of mine's band Little Yellow Perfect. Oh yeah. I uh, uh, ended up recording a, a great record with him with him. Right. And um the the experiences you've had, what do you think has made them a, a success? I mean, you spend time around a ton of musicians and I'm sure you've heard people's horror stories and I'm sure you've done your best to avoid some of those. So what's made it so positive? What's made it work, do you think? Well, I think the biggest thing is just there has to be a trust level. I mean, and for me, I've always worked with a producer who's an engineer. Okay. You know, I've worked with, you know, Davey Vane, Scott Salter, Shay Scott and Paul Hoagland, and now Adam Rossi and Craig Schumacher. I'll be mixing with him. I've always worked with, you know, guys that probably started as engineers, but then became producers. But you have to have a trust level with them that they know the spectrum of your range as far as performance wise goes like what is you know what is your best and what is your limitation mm -hmm. so the thing that i i never want to settle i want someone to get the best out of me that i have you know i don't want to settle for takes or any or anything i'm i'm also a firm believer of you're you're probably going to get three tries on it so you better so you better better get it because i think the spontaneity of that you just can't beat that if you're not if you're not getting it three or four takes whether it's a track or, or vocals then you know there's it it's it recedes a little bit more and mm -hmm. having said that i've also done stuff where i've had to redo stuff you know just because my voice wasn't in the shape that it should should have been or could have been that day mm -hmm. so but i think that i i want to work with someone who is not going to let me just settle for less because um, I, I I feel like that I'm on a trajectory of still getting better at what I do, and I and I have to get better at what I do. That's my that's that's to me that's the only thing you can hold on to. You can't hold on to whether people are going to buy your music or whatever. But if you can progress daily in recording, if you're still like I haven't got it right, I need to get it better. 
then I think that that to me is is what's always going to um, keep you progressing. If you feel like, oh, well, I've, I've settled or, or I'm feeling pretty good about what I've done, then you're done. You know, so I've always felt like from my, I, and I can critique my own stuff in a way. My first record was very me trying to find what my style was and my voice within a wide range of what we talked about. The record after that was a little more concise. It got more weird, which I liked too. It got a little more orchestrated, but still a little more just out of the box, which I love from a production and engineering side. You know, I thought Scott Salter was really good at that. I swear on my friend Shay Scott and Paul, Paul Hoagland, we were able to make some interesting sounding recordings. So my second record was kind of narrowing that that musical scope down and then the third record harmony passing light i think was where i've distilled it that was the record that like i had some of the best players that i knew it was a core of the four of us and we just got to play in a candy store uh we were in a studio my friend shay scott put together this amazing studio and at his house and when i say his house it was like a studio in the basement like he put together one of the best studios in portland at over the course of a couple years he bought the same Neve board uh, that was that was like in Tiny Telephone. He bought the Neve board, uh, a sister board to that one. He got, you know, he had a chance to just put together the best mics and he really put together a candy store of stuff. The other thing for me is I've always recorded on tape, except for this 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 latest record. I've always done it on tape because that's the sound that I wanted to have. Really, and up to up until like up until now, and I wanted to do this last record on tape, but we just couldn't figure out the logistics of the studio. And we're working with Adam Rossi at his studio is also where the band rehearses, and we just felt the most comfortable being in there. So we thought if we're going to record as a band, let's go to the place that we feel the most comfortable. Now. I can't really tell the difference. It sounds, the recordings that we've been doing is very old school, how we've mic'd it, recorded it, everything. Playing live as a band. And you're, you're pleased with that. At this I'm, point. I am, I am. Now, it's, I got to ask you from, you know, years of recording on tape, you know, from the artist's perspective and now doing it in, in I'm, I'm assuming you're doing it in some form of digital audio workstation. You're cool with that. I am. I mean, I if I... You know, the last record that we did was on tape. It was on a two inch twenty four with Pro Tools, mm. so we were able to to do some editing stuff if we needed to. We did both, and what happened was in the end, it was recorded all to tape. In fact, we wanted to even master it on tape, and and which we did master on tape. But I mean, we wanted to mix it on tape, but the reels were shedding. Some of the uh. reels started to shed, so we ended up having to. Uh, mix it all in the box and it was mixed with david simon baker who was worked with mother hips jackie green um jack johnson and david is a very amazing producer on his own in fact he produced some of the last songs on there but also like he mixes old school so he mixes in the box but it was very much you know like a 70s sound tape sound which i love so unfortunately under necessity we ended up Record, recorded the stuff on tape, which I like because I like what it does. It's it just there's just something to it. Do you it like just, that workflow in the studio? I do, and it forces you to be good. I mean, it really does. You have to play. You you can't, you know, unless you're going to waste a shitload of tape. You have to perform well. And for my voice, it just there's something to it. There's something there. You know, you're talking about U47 through a Neve compressor. That's you know that's my chain of, of vocals that i love the best and um and for 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 me it seems to work all right taking a break here from our conversation with brad brooks here on the working class audio podcast I want to take a sponsor break for a moment i want to talk to you a little bit about the audio technica bp40 microphone which i am talking to you on now we have a new review up on the youtube page so it's an unboxing. That's part one. And part two is just kind of a, a comparison uh, of uh, the BP-40 to the Shure SM7. Gives you kind of a back and forth. If you're used to hearing my voice and uh, you want to hear the differences between the two, uh, head on over to our YouTube channel and check that out. The BP-40 is a fantastic mic, and I really stick by that. It's, um, 
it's some of the features include uh it's got a you know it's a large diameter diaphragm with a patented floating edge construction for optimal diaphragm performance humbucking coil which prevents electromagnetic interference and of course it's got a hypercardioid polar pattern which of course keeps moto the bulldog's snores to a minimum when he's here in the room with me it's got a switchable 100 hertz high pass filter and superior off-access rejection for maximum gain before feedback, if you're in that kind of a situation, of course. It's got a multi-stage windscreen, and that helps you provide superior internal pop filtering. And it's an all-metal construction. Uh, it's super, super tough. Built like a little tank is what it is. You can buy an optional shock mount for it, the AT8484, made of, uh, made of plastic, but as I said in my review, a very solid piece of plastic that is very durable will take a beating and it's very easy to use you know a lot of shock mounts are kind of a pain in the ass this shock mount is super smooth it's got a simple mechanism you just drop the mic in turn a switch and you're done so there it is the audio technica bp40 large diaphragm dynamic microphone check it out check our review out on our youtube page all right let's get back to it with brad brooks here on the uh, working class audio podcast over the years as you've been hunting for collaborators has the studio played a great role in your decision-making about who you work with, or is it primarily the person? What role does the technology in the studio play for you in terms of wanting to work with somebody? Well, and as I said, initially it was about tape because I wanted to record on tape. Now I sort of made a, a, a switch on that for this last record because I felt like for what we were doing and, and working with Adam Rossi, who is very an old school style of recording as well. Mm -hmm. So I knew that we were going to get that. I think it was, it's in pro tools 12 is what we're recording in, but we wanted it to sound like a 70s soul record, you know, of a band. So I felt confident and also that the best place for the band to get their, their best magic would be a place that we're comfortable with. But really when I choose who I'm working with, it's usually someone who I'm also playing with. So uh, Harmony of Passing Light, the record I did in Portland, was with my friend Shay Scott and Paul Hoagland. Now, Paul Hoagland has been a very huge part of my music. You know, he's been like my right-hand guy um, up until probably this record. Um, he played a couple of the last things on the first record, but the second record and the third record, especially the third record, is um, it was produced by Paul and Shay Scott but also they were also playing. So I always felt like for me, having the, someone who's part of the writing process or at least bouncing off ideas was a big help. And that's where Adam Rossi comes in as well. He's been playing with me for three years before producing me. Mm -hmm. So I, in fact, I was going to do a co-production with Adam and David Simon Baker at a place that had tape, but we couldn't quite work the schedule out. So I basically went with like, we're here at Rossi's studio rehearsing all the time. Let's just hit the button, you know. Let's let's not waste time. Let's not waste time. And so, but I've always preferred to have someone who is part of the the intimate part of the beginning of the song, you know, of of whether it's writing it or or pre-production. So it's not necessarily you like writing the song and going, "Okay, let's go out and now find a person in a studio to work with." It's it's kind of like a natural process where that person is part of the, the the early process, part of the writing, and then it just transitions to a natural uh, thing of well, let's just go record wherever they want to or can. Yeah, and I you. and I've also been really lucky that well, and it's weird, you know, the first record was with Davey, and like I said, I kind of had like three or four different bands. When I say bands, just like you know, a group of people that were recording songs. Mm -hmm. So, so it was more of a hodgepodge of musicians, you know, that were, that were playing. The second record, I was sort of narrowing that down more. And Paul Hoagland became a big part of that. Now, Paul is abandoned on into himself. He's a badass drummer, bass player, guitar player, singer. Uh, he, he plays everything. And it's just, and he and I have just a, an unspoken, thing that we have about the kind of music that we like i never have to really i mean i never have to tell him what to play you know he just i always think he plays the most amazing stuff still does um this last song we're working on he's 
played some pedal steel on and I just sent him the track and he put it on and and I fucking love it. So <laughs> so he's been a big part and also was a producer in his own right. He produced the first Mother Hips record. But uh it's it's been a transition. So so from the second record, I can't even remember how I met Scott Salter. Um Yeah, Scott is and, I want to talk about Scott a bit because Scott and Desmond Shea, who at the time were that I met them were running Division Hi-Fi, which was a studio in the same building as Cutting Edge Audio Group. And I used to I used to work at Cutting Edge and I would go upstairs and always, you know, visit them and brought a project or two into their studio. But they were really, and I told you this on the phone, they were really instrumental in encouraging me to quit my job and go record. Right. And just, you know, take engineering on as a full-time gig. Right, giving you the confidence to say you can do this. Yeah, yeah, they they definitely did that. And Scott, um, I had recorded some, played drums on one of Scott's records. I was one of one of a couple drummers. and um, But Scott was an interesting, is an interesting guy who I really respect. Mm-hmm. He's definitely, um, he's not your average engineer. There's something different about him. I learned a lot, like working with Scott, you know, um, the thing that I, and I, I don't know if I'd worked with someone like, I mean, Scott is a producer. So he, so he, when you work with him, you're working not only just the engineering part, which I think he's a freaking genius because he's so out of the box at what he likes to do, but also he's a psychologist with you, <laughs> which is what makes great producers. I think you, you, you have to get into the head of the person that you're working with and trying to work with. And, and yeah, I'm trying to think, I can't remember how I met him, but at the time he was working with Sean Darnell and the mountain goats and obviously doing engineering and producing stuff with Vanderslice. And I, I, I must've met him somehow via tiny telephone and through John or something, but um, Scott and I just fucking hit it off immediately. And, um, and I, uh, on my second record, we did some, um, uh, some string parts that he recorded. And at that point, I just fell in love with the guy and, and, and just his thought process. He really thinks out of the box. And I have a picture of him doing this crazy thing where he's got like, he's got a steel drum lined up that he's playing. He's got maybe like a hammer dulcimer going on. And he's got this tape loop that he's kind of, He's got like four things that he's playing and recording at the same time. And you're like, what the, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> and it, of course it sounded amazing. I mean, it was just, it was just amoeba that was moving within, mm-hmm. within the, within the, the music, you know? And so I learned a lot about experimenting and he was really great about that with my music, which I, with which, which I love and still love. And Scott has real strong opinions and as, and you and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. I do like people that have strong opinions because I, I, I think I have some pretty strong opinions too. But I need someone to keep me in the gate, you know, or or keep me in the yard a little bit. But I'm also willing to color outside the lines. And I think that one of the things that I've been lucky about is that the people that I've gotten to play on my records, that's what I want. I want them to do their thing. When it comes to producer engineers you know corralling you or or exercising strong opinions within the context of making a record with you i mean is there a point of pushing you too far or is there like some some people scoff at having somebody really lean on them well i think that's where the trust factor has to come in okay it has to be someone that i trust and it has to be someone that knows me knows what I'm about knows what my music is about and what I'm trying to communicate, even when I don't, you know, because I'm a, I am a believer of letting magic happen and not having things be too rigid as far as where I'm going within it. Mm -hmm. You know, I want it to go where it's going to go. And I think sometimes I need someone to narrow me a little bit. And it's not even just like being a perfectionist about takes or anything like that. I like the process and I want to let fucked up shit happen within it that we keep. And cause I think that is what like makes it interesting. I think one of the things that makes music uninteresting now is there's not enough mistakes or stuff that's like, Oh, that's not, 
that's not, you know, I mean, within reason, I want shit to be in pitch and I want it to be, I want it to be real. And that's the other thing. I think the biggest thing that an engineer producer has to get from me is, and from any singer is you have to believe what they're saying and it has to be from a real spot. And if it's not, then you're fucked. So I'm, I know when I feel it and they need to be able to hear it when they feel and, and feel it too. And if they don't, then it's not going to work out. And I think that's a really, that really separates people from being able to understand a perfect take between what's an emotionally perfect take. Hmm. Does that make sense? It's as opposed to being technically right. You want it emotionally, right? It has to be And you want them to participate in that emotion. And I think some engineers kind of remove themselves from that. They step back and just go, okay, I'm just, I'm going to make sure that levels are good. Things aren't distorting or distorting if they want them to distort and don't get involved in the emotion. And some engineers or producers really get into it. I think that you have, if you're really trying to get the best out of an artist, you have to be emotionally involved in what's going on with them in order to do it. And it, this is, this is funny making me think about it. Um, I was thinking about, um, it makes me think about Linda Perry. Now Linda has gone on to be a pretty fucking amazing producer. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in her own right, one of the things that I think that she learned really early on was that the emotional the real guts of the passion is the most important thing. And she is able to get that out of people to get the, like what is really going on with you as a person and, and what, what's let's get that. You know, I think that's one of the things that makes a really great producer too. It has nothing to do with technicality either. It's like, I need to know what you're writing is real. And if it's real and we make it sound good, that's going to translate the the best. I and I I I firm believer that real emotion, real guts comes through. And when it does, you fucking feel it. When you you listen to Mavis Staples, you know, early, early stuff even to now, it's fucking real. Yeah. I think it 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 takes two to tango here because just as there are engineers who are not emotionally invested in what the artist is doing, the, there's millions of artists who just are, treat the engineer like, okay, I just need you to push the button. I'm going to do all this. And they don't get emotionally involved. <clears throat> I think the special records are made when you have people emotionally invested on both sides of the glass. Your process seems to be an inclusive one. It really kind of wraps everybody in and probably based on what you're saying, and you and I haven't worked together in the studio, but it seems like you kind of get everybody involved and it gets and it gets deep and you want people to be invested in it but not everybody does that right some people just go yeah we need to book a studio and it's like you know almost like yeah we need to book a you know a room for a birthday party and right you know. well you know and, and also too i think it depends on the 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 project we're talking about making records songwriting and and producing now the other side for me is I I got to do a bunch of stuff for when the video games started coming out I did a bunch of singing for Guitar Hero and Karaoke Revolution so I got hired to basically do you know Brad we want you to sound like Daryl Hall so we're going to have you sing Man Eater or Rich Girl because it's going to go on this video game or we want you to sound like you know uh David Coverdale and Whitesnake or, I mean, I did like 30 different songs over the years and that was more of a, okay, it was more clinical. I didn't have an emotional thing to it. I had to sound exactly like as much as I could this person. Which is interesting because I too worked on that. Yeah. So I had to bring the engineering skills to listen to what was like, you know, sticks come sail away or Barry Manilow, Copacabana and go, okay, how can we emulate this? Yeah. And it is, it's very like, it's It's funny you say that. Did you work on come sail away? I did. Yeah. I I'm saying it. Okay. And I recorded the instrumental bed for it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I did a bunch of, I did a bunch of that stuff. Um, and it was fun to do, but it was a different thing. It was more work work for hire. 
essentially. Yeah. And yeah. so and so you had to um It's a different hat to wear. Yeah, and you had you were basically there was no emotion in it really. It was more like this is this is how it's supposed to sound. This is this is the it's gotta sound exact as close as possible. So a different thing for both artist and engineer to to deal with in that particular case. But when it comes to original music where it's like your own thing, it's a different it's a different challenge. I, I wanna ask you a little bit about this. What's been your experience economically dealing with the whole thing. The whole yeah. thing. You know, um, and, how, and what are the what are the pros and the cons or the challenges that you've yeah. dealt with? I think in my case, that's partly why it's take takes me longer to to make records, mm-hmm. you know, because because of that, because I'm financing it myself. And also I'm kind of a guy that like I have to I like to have something done before I can move on to the next a little O C D about that. Like finishing a song before you start to record the next song. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and it's weird. This was a case where, where um, well, it's just, for me, it's usually like in threes. You know, like I got three songs going. I'll go and record them, and then, like even when I'm working on now, I have like five or six things that I really, really like, and I'm really looking forward to mixing them because then I'm like, okay, this is where I'm halfway done, and. Now I'm free to figure out what the rest of it's going to sound like, even though I have like a lot of the songs pretty much finished. Mm-hmm. But um, the financial part is what also takes longer because as much as um, from the from the artist side of it, you know, everyone's, you know, from the top of the food chain down to the bottom, no one's making a fucking thing on their music. You know, there's an interesting thing that Roger Waters had just posted about about his experiences and and all the you know all the top artists uh, you know they make records to go tour you know pretty much mm-hmm. because no one's making money on it because it's they can get it free or you it's from Spotify to Pandora to YouTube if you want to listen to music now that's not how I like to listen to music I'll if I want to hear it I, I'm gonna buy it. And or I'm gonna get it on vinyl and I'm gonna listen to it. You know, I do think CDs are are pretty obsolete at this point. But uh, I've always waited longer in order to make it sound better from the financial part. You know, because I I have to put my name on it and stand behind it. Um, when you're when you're sort of in a band situation, it's four people deciding, and <laughs> yeah. that's the other that's the other part of it. You know, that's the other thing I learned. It's easier for me to decide and make my own mistakes than it is to make a group decision, but it's all trickling down to everyone else. It's not free to make records. I think some artists are more appreciative than others. Like I had a guy call me, I remember a number of years ago, and he said, uh, yeah, I need to I need to do some uh some recording. And you know, I, I think at the time I had a studio in Emeryville. You know, had a significant investment in, in a Pro Tools rig and some, you know, a, a whole studio, and was running it as a co-op with some some other folks, some other engineers. And this guy said, uh, "So what? What do you charge?" And I and I told him, and I think at the time it was probably like thirty, thirty-five bucks an hour, something like that. And the guy was like, "Well, I can't pay that." And I said, "Well, okay." And he goes, "I mean." After all, it's just a Pro Tools rig, and anybody can buy a Pro Tools rig and and do that. And I was then like, go home and make your own record. Buddy. And and I just I just said I don't think I'm your guy. Yeah, based on what you're telling me, and I just you know pushed it away. And he resisted at first. And I just said no, I'm sorry. Thanks, thanks for calling. Yeah, and I, it it pissed me off. It's and it's almost it was almost like. Well, you know, playing drums is incredibly easy. All you got to do is hit things, and that it's it it was uh, it's very similar to that, right? Whereas uh, some artists are really appreciative and just like they know, okay, you've invested in this and you've done your homework and you're really trying to help me out, and uh, well, those and, are ideal situations. Well, and also there are some people who are great musicians who are also really great engineers too and they can record their own stuff and play everything yeah, and do their own true. do their own thing whether it's on you know 
uh, one inch eight track or, or, or pro tools. So I'm curious about your experiences uh, with Michael Rosen. What was Michael working on? I think he was working, he'd done the rancid record. We kind of hit it off and he knew how to record hard rock guitars and, and, uh, and this was pretty much a four piece guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Um, and, uh, I think we recorded at Troy Luketa's place out in, in Hayward. Troy Lucetta from Tesla. Yeah, from Tesla <laughs> at his place. That's where Michael was recording at. And um, I liked working with Michael a lot. Um, he was great at recording a, a real band, you know, a live band. It's funny. That is a record I'd like to see come out, you know, because it did sound pretty damn good. Who, who's got the masters? Um, I, I know that Linda had them. I think Roger Rocha might have them now. And it's just a matter of us just, just talking to her. And I know she's been cool about having it happen because one of the songs... It's a song called Patricide that, that she let me use for my first record. So I was able to put that recording of, of that song on my record. So hmm. I don't think there's anything weird about it anymore. It's just about going, okay, let's, uh, it needs to be mastered. And I think I'm pretty sure maybe it still needs to be mixed. I'm not sure. But yeah, it is kind of the lost archive in my in my soul a little bit you know i mean it's it's fortunate that your your experiences have been very positive and you've really it seems you've kind of maintained a good grip on it some people have bands or solo work and that can be greatly affected by producers and engineers that they involve themselves with and i've seen numerous times projects get sabotaged not on purpose but just because you know they didn't people didn't really vet um the studios or the engineers they were working with so. yeah i think i think for me i've been lucky that you know most of the people that, that i've worked with have especially like my, my last record with shay scott and paul hoagland i'm writing the songs but we're we're working them out together but we're also collaborating on some of the songs too whether it's bridges or 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 things it was and Todd Roper was a big part of it too. So it was kind of like a recording band. I was very lucky that that group of guys was, it was a group of, it was a great band who also happened to have two really good engineer producers that, that, that were perfect, you know, as far as like their, how they worked together. I called them the chemical smothers brothers because we had the most fun <laughs> joking around but they were really in tune with each other and with my music and what it was and so i was very very lucky and that's that's why i feel like that record i can hang my hat on that one as far as like this is a, probably the first real piece of art that i made in my in my in my life as far as cohesive throughout and so um and that experience worked on on the emotional level because of that. And it also made it difficult because I was just like, you know, you're just sweating out the details of it. You know, how is, how is it going? And, and how the, um, how's it sounding, which is what I tend to do. Like I'm sort of in the studio, sometimes hard to read, like what I think about something because I'm still, I'm thinking about it processing. I'm not, you know, I'm not jumping around. Yeah, it was awesome or whatever. I'm, I have to. I have to process it and, and listen to it and, and decide. I'm more of a tinkerer in that way. I know when it, a good take feels feels right, and I'm going to go with that more. I was also lucky that where we recorded at, which was at Shea's studio, was a fucking candy store of like what it had of all the vintage cool shit that anyone should have. That was procured by both of them as far as like what it should have from from the, the the drums that were in there to i mean it was really so it was kind of like a production little production house it's like you just showed up and they well, had everything it was all the yeah i just you know paul and i would just come to portland and, and roper was living there at the time and and todd's a fucking great drummer by the way um and so uh i was really lucky i had really great players who cared about the music knew me and we wanted to record it in the old school way of like two inch tape and fucking great takes and let's have some fun, you know. Craig's Craig Schumacher's uh, Wave Lab is is kind of like that. You exactly. Know? You go in and there's just yeah. you know, yeah, all, all kinds of instruments. Uh, and I don't know if you know Jim Scott. Jim Scott is 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 a legend that's been on my show. That uh, Jim's got a studio in, in Southern California that's very similar in many respects to Wave Lab in that it's called pliers and you know you just show up they've got 
Yeah. Drums, guitars, amps, you know, keyboards, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, Wave Lab is, is a candy store as well. Shay's, it was called uh, Clickitat Bandcamp because that was a Clickitat Street. And it was around for maybe 10 years or something. He made a lot of records out of there as well and um, ended up having different producers come in. And, and they, you know, he basically like let people produce records there. And he, him and his wife lived upstairs pretty much. And I think that's kind of maybe burned him out a little bit. You know, you can only do that for so long, having everyone in, in your in your space for that long a time but uh god it was a great studio and and i know he still has some of it i think he sold the board yeah that neat board was pretty pretty sweet with all those compressors and stuff that he had so we recorded it in a really old school way and i still firmly believe in that style of recording which is also how tiny telephone likes to record and and john's new place seems like in that same vein and and obviously for Craig too, a wave lab, that's always been his MO. When you say that, do you, are you referring to just like playing live, playing a, a takedown live together? Playing live, having the old mics that sound fucking great. As I've said, there's something to play into tape, you know, although I'm really liking how I'm, the stuff is sounding not playing to tape because I think that Pro Tools 12 is pretty, from what I've heard, is, is uh, you know, there's there's ways you can make it sound it's pretty hard to tell the difference, but my music is more in 60s, 70s bass. So, so it's always going to want to have this warm quality to it. You know, that's just so my, my style. Kind of chasing those techniques is kind of key in, in your music because, you know, that's the aesthetic. So I think so. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not above doing anything out of the box, but I think that like, that's just what I like, you yeah. know? <laughs> Do you prefer to work in a studio environment or do you like working in like a more home-based environment with studio gear in it? Um, I probably prefer more of a, I mean, I've worked more in studios, even though Shay's place was at home. It was like, a, it was a studio in the basement. Like, like it was an amazing studio in the basement. Um, and it was, it was a good size. It wasn't as wide open, say, as Wave Lab, as Craig's place much more condensed, you know, cause it was a basement in Portland. So lower ceilings, but mm -hmm. it was, it was a super legit studio, you know, a place that has a vocal booth. I mean, I've done, you know, some of the, um, karaoke revolution stuff was, was in some smaller places. And, but I, I, I prefer being in a studio like Rossi's place is is not huge, but it's a recording studio. And, I'm probably always going to record with the band, you know, like live and do it in that way. And that's just the way that I like to do it. Although here's a strange deviation from that. I've gone through throat cancer the past year, which has been extremely difficult, but things are going great. And it was a 90% success rate for the type of cancer that I have. But really, you know, the radiation, 30 days of radiation really fucked up my voice and it's it's back now, but it was really, really difficult time. And so I've been kind of writing stuff, you know, processing that as far as like what I've been writing about. So there was a song that we, the new song that called Burn It Off, which is basically about being radiated, <laughs> being in radiation. But the dark feelings about what goes on with you during cancer is that you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk to anybody about it. It's very, there's a mental thing that goes on that you kind of have to go through the other side of. So I would have been dealing with this and this song came, came, you know, came fast. Like when they come fast, that's usually a good sign. The song came really fast. So we went to Rossi's place and I played the acoustic and, and we did the vocal and I fucking love the song. And so um, we did it to uh, like a, uh, a shaker, so it was in time. So I basically like did acoustic and 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 um, and sang the vocal. And the vocal is the is now. Fast forward a couple months, that's the last thing that stayed. That in the shaker. So everything else is developed around the vocal. So it wasn't a band thing. It's more kind of outside like your normal way stuff. of working. Yeah, exactly. But because it has that seed of the real feeling that i was going through in the vocal take that's what that's that's why we're doing it that way huh. i i i got that out of my out of my body 
you know, that, that, that take and what I was trying to say, I can re-record it, but I can't, that moment and time in my life was important and I needed to capture it. And I did. So everything else goes around that. You know, and that's, there's something, a, a very strong statement there, just capturing the emotion that comes off of an artist in any given moment. I know that sometimes we can just be cavalier and say, well, I just do another take, but and I know this doesn't compare, but uh, we were trying to do, um, trying to really dig into video for the working class audio podcast. And in doing it, we, I really learned something that, I mean, I, I didn't really learn it. I, I already knew it really, but it just reinforced it. Like I would, um, you know, when I sit down to do a podcast, I just do it, you know? It's, I speak from the heart. I don't really think too much about it. And with the video, I would, I knew that I you couldn't really. more self-conscious, right? You become way more self-conscious yeah, yeah. and you realize, well, I can't really do the same. Like I can, on, on a podcast, I can edit it. And, and if I stumble, it's, I'm like, oh, whatever, I'm, I'm stumbling. I can edit that out. But with video, it's hard to edit that out without having it look really, you know, jarring. And there'd be a couple times where I would sit, I would set the camera up. I would be recording the podcast on video as well as audio at the same time. And then all of a sudden I would get through pretty much all of my intro or my monologue and just completely lose my train of thought, start looking at the camera and realizing I, I just screwed this whole thing up and I got to redo it. And to find that energy w was really hard. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of abandoned the whole video thinks I thought this is really sabotaging the point of the podcast. It's just getting in the way. Right. It's taking away some of the more honesty on the honest moments because you're, you're thinking too much about how it's looking on top of it. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. Oh, you know, did I, I, I did I pick I, my nose or, or, or not even that it's more about just, it's, it's about like losing uh, the train of thought or stumbling verbally and, thinking oh thinking right at the moment getting self-conscious conscious and thinking oh gosh okay i gotta redo that because i don't want to look like a fool but then i'd stop and go oh but that was really good i got out what i wanted to say right at the first take and i got to do a second take how absurd right and would just right. so t bringing this all back to the artist when we really, I think it's important for us engineers when, when working with, with artists, trying to really have our shit together so that they can just come in and they, emote. They could just yeah. do their thing. Yeah. And if it was really emotionally happening, you know, you were there, you got it. Well, and that's the most important thing to catch that moment of re of true emotion. I mean, when you hear it, you know it, right? From the artist that you that you respect, you know. I mean, it's weird. It, you know, just you can just pick it out. The the I, I I love Mary J. Blige, right? I think she's so bad badass. And when she sings, you just feel every fucking note. You know, it's just so real. And that is like that is her gift. I don't know what she's like as a person, but you, you probably know that whatever she's going through, you're going to hear it come through. It's funny. We were talking about my friend Paul, or I've been talking about my friend Paul Hoagland. He's one of the like, most amazing musicians I've ever met. And the thing that I love about Paul is that he never plays anything twice because he can't, but it's always real. You always know, and, and you always know you know, whether he's angry or sad or whatever, it comes through. He can't help it. It's in his playing. I want to ask you about mixing. It's the scariest part. Why is it the scariest part? Um, because there's there can be so many options, you know? And options within the balance of it all? Just options with which roads you want to go down, you know? And if you don't have a clear vision, you can spend a lot of time and money. It's not the final thing, because I, I do believe in mastering. But um, mixing is, you know, it's how it's how the 360 degree picture is heard and seen. Do you participate actively in the mixing of of your work? 
Um, I do, um, but I don't. I try to get the right people, and I try to let them do do their thing. I mean, uh-huh. and I've been very lucky in that way. But I'm I'm always there, with the exception of maybe there's been a couple of things where it's like maybe it's something we've talked about, and I and they're they're just remixing what we've already done, and we bounce it back and forth. But I like to be there. I sit there and white knuckle it <laughs> a lot of times. Listen to your vo- vocal soloed and. No, I mean, I don't, I, not so much that it's more just like, you know, where things are. The one thing I will say is that I've learned over the years, you know, and it's pretty simple concept, the better shit's recorded, the easier it is to mix, you know? Yeah. And, and if you have a pretty idea where you want things placed, I'm, I, I definitely like mixes where things are panned and, you know, hard panned. And if it's, you know, I like the sort of Beatles sort of thing of mixing where, you know, you can put, you can you can play around with it. You can put drums on one side. It's not going to kill you. You know, I've done a, a lot of that kind of stuff. But um, I really like to let the person who who's doing it do their thing. And that's, you know, I think you have to do that. And so I've been lucky. Um, I really like how David Simon Baker and, and Paul and Shay mixed the last record. And, and I know Craig is going to do a fucking great job with the new stuff. So what I feel do, like I'm in good hands. Have you ever been... Uh, had a situation where you hand it over to somebody to mix and then they send you the mix and let you listen to it kind of without being there and being present for the entire time? Um, yeah. I mean, when I think about it, there was some stuff from the last record where I wasn't there, but I like to be there and I don't like to be there to be over somebody's shoulder. I can just be sitting there reading a magazine, but I like to, you know, if there's a question about where things need to go, mm. someone can just ask me, but yeah, I, I realize. uh, there's a song on Harmony and Passing Light called Farewell to Folder All that I wasn't there for that Paul mixed and it's fucking brilliant. Like it's, you know, it came out so well and I wasn't, I wasn't there. I just, you know, he just did his thing. Do you get bored in that, uh, that those early stages of the mix where, you know, engineers kind of pushing stuff around like, no, I mean, I I mean, I, I like it too, you know, (laughs) I do. I mean, I, I learn stuff all the time, you know, I mean, I, I I love the process of making records. So, I mean, you have to, and and I and I do. I love doing it. It's it's something that I can't stop. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't plan on stopping. So. Well, cool, man. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. It was really good hanging out and talk with you. Awesome. Brad Brooks on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and checking that out. Hope that gives you a little bit different perspective and gets you to think outside our own audio bubble. So, uh, yeah, Brad Brooks. Well, we are at a time and there's our music from uh, Mr. Cliff Truesdell there. Thanks Cliff. And thank you, Chuck Smith. Thank you, Cole Williams for your editing and help in social media. And, uh, thank you all for listening. And I want to thank our sponsors. Of course, want to thank audio technica, universal audio, focal monitors, and GearSluts.com. Want to especially thank you all for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.